Welcome to The Collective Table, the ultimate female perspective on Jesus, justice, and joy with Chelsea Simon, with Dana Black, and with Claire Watson. We are all United Methodist pastors in different places of the ordination process. The three of us are working to provide progressive and affirming Christian content, resources, and community through The Collective Table. The Collective Table offers many ways to connect in person and virtually, such as a podcast. I want to begin by just thanking you, Valerie, for being here today. We're excited to host this discussion, and we've been look been looking forward to learning from you and hearing more about your story and how we can get involved in revolutionary love. I do want to just take a, a, a moment to do a brief introduction that I took from Valerie's website and then give a plug to Valerie's website. So Valerie Kaur is a renowned civil rights leader, lawyer, award-winning filmmaker, educator, innovator, and author of the number one LA Times bestseller, See No Stranger. She is the founder of the Revolutionary Love Project, recognized by President Biden as a healing force for America. Valerie burst into global consciousness when her 2016 Watch Night Service address went viral with 40 million views worldwide. Her question, is this the darkness of the tomb? or the darkness of the womb, reframes the historical moment and is now a mantra for people fighting for change. There is so much more to say about Valerie, but I want to maximize our time with her. Given that, please check out her website, ValerieCore.com. And kind of with that, let's just dig in. So I'm, I'm going to start with some questions. And again, if you have questions, you can put them in the chat or raise your hand. I wanted to kind of start in the beginning. We read this book and you write extensively about your family and your childhood in Clovis California. You especially write about your relationship and its evolution with Papa G, um, your father's father, correct? My mother's father. Your mother's father, sorry. And in this fight chapter, you talk about it, you say sick as we listen to the audiobook, but I've also heard Sikh and I want to pronounce it correctly. So in Punjabi, it's Sikh with an aspirated an H, but the faith, the community has been called Sikh for many years as well. So most likely we wouldn't cor- correct you if you used it. We, we would just be grateful that you knew who we were. Oh. <laughs> but you can say sick with an aspirated H to get extra points. Okay, excellent. Sick with an aspirate. Okay, perfect. Uh, you talk about the sick warrior tradition through the nonviolent lens, which I also noticed was included in Richard War's meditation last week. If you listen to Richard War, can you, as we start off, can you just tell us more about how this contributed to your understanding of justice and love as you grew and developed into the activist you are now and just kind of open with that space? Let me first say it's so beautiful to be here with you all. And I'm just like taking a breath to sink in to this moment that we get to share together. It's Halloween day. So I just rushed back from picking up my daughter from preschool. And as soon as we're done, I'll be rushing to pick up my son in elementary school and making sure their costumes are still intact. So to have this moment of just deep breath is beautiful with you all. I'm thinking about my children. You know, I I was six years old when I heard my first racial slur. And it was my grandfather's lap that I sat in when I cried and he wiped the tears from my face. And he said, you know, my dear, don't abandon your post. I was a little girl in two long braids, but my grandfather saw me as a warrior. And I think that was the very beginning of me imagining 
what it took, the resilience, the strength, the bravery it took to be able to move through this world standing in love. When that little boy gave me that racial slur, I, I feel as though he must have activated something in me that I have wrestled with all my life since then. I call it the little critic, the voice inside that says you're not good enough or strong enough or smart enough or beautiful enough or American, all the not enoughness. And I think all of us must have that voice. And if you're a person of color or a woman of color, it, it looks like internalized oppression. Like it, it, it's it's quite, the voice is quite acute. And I was lucky that my papaji had activated or projected another part of me, the, the woman warrior in me, <laughs> the wise woman who would take my hand and lead me back into the battlefield and say, oh, my love, you are enough. You are enough. And I think my entire life since then has been this like power struggle between the little critic and the wise woman until finally I, I realized as much as I wanted to banish that voice that the wise woman was helping me practice what I practice out in the world on myself. You know, my, my mantra when I look at anyone is saying, you are a part of me, I do not yet know. So she was like, can you look at this little critic and say, you are a part of me, I do not yet know, you know, and wonder about him instead of trying to drown him or banish him. I was quite violent. It's like, no, <laughs> this is a part of you, my love. And when I, when I got curious about that part of myself, I understood that it was really the voice of fear, that he was just afraid for me, that to be a woman of color standing up in a time such as this and calling for love. It's actually, he was right. It's actually, it is actually dangerous. He was just wrong about the solution. The solution is not more silence. It's more solidarity. So the wise woman in me, the warrior woman in me says, you don't give birth alone. You don't go to battle alone. Who are the people who can stand with you as you're championing this way of reclaiming love as a force for justice. I think that so many of us right now, I mean, the loudest voices in the world right now are run on that little critic energy. The, you know, that energy of fear and self-criticism and not enoughness. And if I can't, if, I, if I'm, if you get, then something has been taken away from me, this trap of falling into the zero-sum way of thinking, the sense of scarcity. But I, I, I firmly believe there is a voice of deep wisdom inside of each of us, that if we just take the stillness, the spaciousness to recover, to take a deep breath, <laughs> to find the courage to say, I can stand in my humanity and affirm yours, and imagine a way that in which we will all have enough. That's really the invitation, I think, of, of the book and the movement that we are building to invite all of us to be that brave, to, to live a life with love as our compass. I, I love the chapter, the, the transition chapter, where you introduce the uh, little critic and the wise woman. And you wrote that it was, you actually phrased it, you said, I, I, I decided to practice this. Yes. And I love that I decided because you you made a choice in that moment to, to practice listening to the wise woman and seeing what the wise woman had to offer and not shoving the little critic down. How does that manifest itself for you as you continue on in this work? And how do you encourage other people to kind of get on that that stages of change experience and choose that for themselves? Well, you know, remember we it's about it begins with reclaiming the definition of love, right? Love is not just this rush of sentimental emotion, or but love is sweet labor, mm. fierce, bloody, imperfect, life-giving. A choice we make again and again. In choosing to be faithful to the wise woman in me, I'm making a choice to practice loving myself. And it's a choice I have to make 
every day. And it's a labor that I must engage with every day. And, you know, it's really easy to get tempted just to listen to that voice, right? So it, it, it actually takes effort to take the breath, to slow it down. <laughs> you know, I, I literally have a, a journal that says my wise woman journal. And she says, wise woman here, wise woman says, oh, my love. She calls me my love. She's very, very sweet. Oh, my love. You're solo parenting right now. It's Halloween day. The children are literally on top of you. You're not going to reschedule this book club because it's really important to do. You want to be with these beautiful people. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be present. Just take the breath. There's enough time and show up. She's literally talking to me. You know, all throughout my days, you know, I, I had a post-it on my um, desk that said, breathe and push, right? Just like, you know, when you're mothering, especially it's like, how do you find there's a, there's not, there's not time to really breathe, <laughs> like, not that it has, you know, to spend a whole afternoon in the forest or a morning at the sea. Like, so I've had to understand like the seconds of solitude, the seconds that I could take to put breath in my body. And though at any time that I, there's an opening of just seconds like between when this zoom ends and the children come through the door, although they might come in earlier, <laughs> my daughter might. Can I listen to the wise woman in me to say, oh, take the breath, my love. And then perhaps when she's like crying because she wants the candy before lunch, I will immediately snap at her. <laughs> Right. Because I've taken breath in my body. It's like, it's so granular, like a big practice inside of the context of our own home and our most intimate relationships. Now imagine if we showed up that way for the opponents out there in the world, like the world in here is just as real as the world out there. The same practices here equip us for how we show up for our, our most serious political opponents. And ironically, it's the same kinds of tools that I need to be able to return to my breath to summon the wise woman, to lead with my wonder, not to react out of aggression, but to, but to make space to be able to practice loving. I just want to thank you because I'm a mom of, well, my oldest is now 23. My youngest is 14. And I just appreciate that you said you, st you still snapped in one moment, because, but yeah. yeah. So thank you for naming that. <laughs> yeah. You know, in fact, there's a whole, there's a whole part of the compass. There's a whole chapter on rage. Yeah. Yes. Right. So my, my, one of my dear mentors, Parker Palmer, has called revolutionary love the new nonviolence because it makes room for our grief. It makes room for loving ourselves. It, it makes room for rage. Yeah. And, and this aspect, <laughs> I have to tell you, I discovered when my son first had his tantrums when he was little, I would feel so angry. And then feel like I was, a, I felt so guilty, like, oh, I must not be a good mother. And, and then I like read Audre Lorde. No, your anger is loaded with information and energy. Like the solution is not to suppress it or to let it explode, but to process it in safe containers, to interrogate it, to say, what information does my rage carry about what's important to me? Oh, I just want to, I want him to be safe. I want him to, like, you know, and then how, how might that spaciousness allow me to reimagine how to care for him an earlier bedtime or an extra snack. And so now my children have this language like, oh, mommy, is that a safe container for rage? <laughs> like you're right. <laughs> so we'll go to the closet, we'll throw pillows on the ground, you know, we'll move the energy together instead of shaming ourselves for these human impulses. We'll move, we'll become intimate with these energies moving through us. And I think that intimacy allows us to move through them. And so we can then choose what we do, what we say next, we can choose to lead with our wisdom next, but only after we, we honor what's going on here. It's so important to help our children, at least for me, like, how do I not, um, not that I want to get into a child conversation, but how do they not feel shame for what they're feeling? Because it's, it's, it's how do we name it and, yeah. and honor it? And, and so we can move through it together. So thank you for, you know, putting that out there. Yeah. 
one of the chapters that we had so many questions on was the listening chapter. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's probably the meat and potatoes. Boy, listening is so hard and wondering about people is so hard. We spent a lot of time talking about this and, and just the thoughtful and uncomfortable stories that you offered and we processed through. Um, and just wondering if you could s- explore a little bit with us. You you offered, there was two in there. One was back in the restaurant in LA and in the Mexican restaurant where you encountered these individuals who were saying very hurtful and aggressive things and how and and you walking up to them and and having a conversation with them and then the other one we reflected on was the too polite i called the too polite scenario when you were in south carolina and the the white evangelical woman you know gets up and you ended up kind of agreeing because you wanted to seek out sameness but not difference how how do we think about these two situations how do we wonder how do we listen for me i'm thinking how do they not avoid defensiveness going into these situations? How did you feel safe? How do you know if you're safe? Yeah. I guess that's a lot of questions in one, but. What I've come to learn is that human beings, we mirror each other. If we show up to a conversation with daggers out, then the person across from us will bring daggers out. And then there's no actual exchange. It's just clashing. But if we choose to disarm and sit and lead with our wonder, like even when we're noticing the activation in our bodies. And this is where the somatic literacy is really important. And this is what I do with my children too. It's like, what are you noticing in your body? Your body will tell you, like, if you're thinking of an opponent right now and you feel a lot of activation, like your throat closes, your chest collapses, you're feeling that's probably information that this is not necessarily the right time for you to engage with this opponent. Let other people do that work. Mm -hmm. Your role is to tend to your own trauma, your own rage, your own grief. But if you can't think of an opponent and you feel like a little bit of discomfort, there's enough spaciousness inside of you to wonder and you really wonder like, why? Why do they say that? Why do they believe that? What stories are, are like, why are they clinging to those stories? Mm-hmm. What are the algorithms that are producing that worldview? Like, why are they addicted to those algorithms? Like what, why, if you're really genuinely wondering why, and you decide to sit with someone at first, they'll be like, they'll want to pick up the arms every moment. But if, if you keep leading with your wonder, they might start allowing you to listen beneath the sound bites, beneath the slogans. They, you might start to access their story, their own lived experience. And once you hear their story, then you can start to see the wound, right? And that there are no such thing as monsters in this world. Only people who are wounded, who say what they say, do what they do out of their insecurity or, or blindness or greed, but it doesn't make them any less dangerous. But when we see their wound, they lose their power over us. And we can become smarter about changing the context, the larger context that drive that behavior. And then sometimes, not always, but sometimes they just might start wondering about you too. (laughs) You know, they might want to hear your story. And when that happens, oh, this magical space has opened up of genuine exchange. And we see that so, so there's such few representations of that way of listening in our culture, in our media landscape, in our news and our politics, certainly. So it's the spaces where we're already gathering, like in schools, in churches, houses of worship, companies, where we're already gathering with people who are different from us. Can we create spaces of deep listening? And the primary goal, and this is how we, otherwise we're going to be disappointed. The primary goal is not to transform them in one conversation or to, or to legitimize them or to compromise with them. Like if the primary goal is to understand them, then you're on a journey. 
And I have found that change has never happened in the course of one conversation, like deep change. It requires sustained listening, ongoing relationship. And I have to tell you my update to you since I finished the book. Is, as, as you know, I we reached out to Bulbir Uncle's murderer. So Bulbir Singh Sodhi, the first person killed in a hate crime after 9-11, was killed by Frank Roque, who was in a U.S. prison. And we reached out to begin this process of forgiveness and then ultimately reconciliation. And in talking to him again and again, and hearing his story, this man that I wanted to hate, I began to understand that so much of white nationalist aggression is rooted in unresolved grief. They, they are grieving the illusion that this nation ever belonged just to them in the first place. Now, it might not be my role to tend to that grief, but it might be someone else's. It might be yours, neighbors, congregants, relatives, like, because if you're not in relationship with them, then who is? <laughs> And so this, this invitation that everyone has a different role in the labor at any given time, revolutionary love is, is practiced in community. So to be literate, to be discerning about my particular role in the labor, is it to is it to love on others, to build deep bridges of solidarity? Is that where I'm most needed right now? Is it to reach out to some opponents because I'm positioned to, you know, to, to, to love on them, to be in relationship with them, to listen to them into a possibility of transformation? Or is it to love on myself and my people right now who are hurting so much. Mm -hmm. I feel like in any, I, I feel like in, in any given season of my life, there's one that I need that is dominant. And in any given day <laughs> there, you know, it's very, it's like, I, I, I'm approaching my life now as a series of experiments with, with revolutionary love. And I think of like the fact that revolutions happen, not just in those big grand public moments, but in the spaces where people are inhabiting a new way of being. So imagine if a critical mass of us became literate in our particular roles. Like, isn't that the deeper culture change, the consciousness shift that we are after in this larger era of transition? That's that's my new way of approaching social change. I, I want to stick with this. And you said um, I, I was curious to see how things had how things had transitioned because the, you end the book with going to see him for the first time and. He, he's not quite at a point where he's taking responsibility for what he does. So this, this, this relationship has continued and now you're learning, you learn from him where that, that it was this grief and you're, and are, are you, in your research, are you seeing um, that be consistent? And as white people, is that a role we have to play is being in there and trying to understand, okay, where is this coming from? What's the underlying learned behavior? Is this grief? Is that what's the deep wound? How do we be present for those individuals so that that's our piece to it? Yes, absolutely. Let me say first that I was engaging with Frank for some years and and then got the news from a letter that was sent to us from the prison that he had died quite unexpectedly. And when I told Rana Sodi, this was just a few months ago when I told Rana Sodi, he said, they're together now. Frank and Bulbir, they're together. He's, he's asking to hug him. In reconciliation, you can never go to the point before the abuse has happened. There's no going back. But there is moving forward in a new way of returning to wholeness, to be broken and whole. And I think what I experienced in my family, in my community, that I think is the only hope for the country at large. There's no going back to before colonization and genocide and enslavement. There's only going forward in a way that acknowledges and reconciles with the past and, and finds a new way of being whole and together. And I think so many, especially in the progressive social justice spaces, I know that I know that many white people tell me they think that their role right now is to be quiet and just let the people of color lead. 
and I appreciate that impulse because we have been marginalized for so long, but say, no, 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 we actually need you. <laughs> you have a very particular role to play that I think that this could be the generation where white people are redefining whiteness mm. so that it's not just synonymous with domination or blindness, but what if to be white was to be an accomplice, to be an ally, to co-conspire, to create that new whole. And for and to do that grief work, I mean, for white people to become a, a minority in this country in a beautiful, graceful way, that's happening in our lifetime. <laughs> and that's never happened before. You know, will we continue to teeter on, a, on the brink of civil war in the next 20 years? Or will we begin to birth a nation that has never been a multiracial democracy? And the only way we can get there is if people who have been identified as white can do that hard, beautiful, tender work with those who are grieving, who are wondering if they have a place in this new world, to show them stories of others, like show them my story, <laughs> you know, to hold up a vision that says, actually, there's a place for you here. There's a place for you here. It's not replacement theory. It's reimagining a, a, a mosaic in, in the country where if you see us lifted up, you will be lifted up too. And so I, I see the death of a lot of stories right now about who we are, about who America is as this white Christian nation, as a city on the hill. And that requires like, it's actually, it's okay to mourn those stories. And then to actually co-write a new story is what we are being tasked to do, to do that in each, in each of our own ways, you know, from where we are, could this be the beloved community we're living into? And I know it sounds so big, but if we could just take our corner, our small patch of sky, right? Like our corner of the world and live into it here, then all together, that's stitched together for the change that we need at large. I do want to pause and just check in and see, does anybody have a follow-up on this? Because I think this is a really important topic. Valerie, you're, you are talking to a, um, a white community where our, our, the church that we go to is predominantly white. Um, it's in North County, um, San Diego. And so this is a really uh, good topic for us to be on. And I just want to make sure that we we open it up and just any clarifying questions or an opportunity for us to just dive in a little deeper. I want to honor that. Yeah, Dana, um, I kind of had a, a corollary question, I guess. In, in the book, you talk a lot about um, the system and how the system needs to change, you know, systematic racism. And it just seems like the system is people and it's people that have to change. And it, when you put it in that context, I'm just wondering if it gives people permission to say, oh, well, that's not me. That's the system. And, you know, that's other people will do that. But and, you know, the, the government's doing it or somebody's doing it. And I don't know, it, it just it strikes me as, is there another way to put it that would inspire more action or um, I'm not articulating that very well, but it just seems like it makes it so it's nobody's fault when you put it as the, it's the system that needs to change. Well, the only way it will change is through us. And in order to change the system, we have to change ourselves to awake to what we've just gotten so used to. I mean, that moment at Guantanamo really sealed it for me when I was speaking to that young soldier on Guantanamo Bay and, and then finally listening to his story and understanding how he was cast in this larger narrative where we'd all been given roles, me as witness, the prisoner, Omar Khadr as the prisoner, 
this young soldier as the the guardian, this, the perpetrator in the story that we had all inherited Guantanamo and that we had inherited Guantanamo's. It's almost like I'm just rereading Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, mm-hmm. and her gorgeous, gorgeous metaphor of like walking into the darkened theater and being shown your seat. This is the role because of your race, because of your position, because of your color, because of your status. Like this is the role you're playing. And if we're just unthinkingly taking our seats in the hierarchy, unthinkingly taking our roles in the institutions that we've inherited, then nothing will ever change. I mean, that's exactly how it's been perpetrated generation after generation after generation. And so to wake up to that requires an internal transformation. And it's uncomfortable because it's threatening, you know, especially if you're someone who's who's gained benefits or privileges from your particular seat in the theater, <laughs> you know, to, to, be able, to be able to wake up to how much of that was unearned or to be able to wake up to how much you've been complicit, even though you're a good person, you are, we're all good people. And yet we've been thrown into this society where we're all given these social locations that are either uplift or demean other people. So the waking is the reckoning with white privilege, the waking with all, you know, the waking is the, is also waking up to the fact that it ought not be this way. And that to undo it actually requires a lot of disruption. And there is some cost, there is some risk that you will lose your reputation or popularity or some segment of your resources. You will lose the narratives, the stories that you've told yourself about who you are and what this country is. That's the grieving I'm talking about. It's like the waking comes with grieving with these things that we've just relied on. But the promise is that on the other side is like more beautiful solidarities that you could not have imagined before. taking hands with people who have been fighting for a long time already, being enriched by those experiences, being emboldened, being more courageous than we ever thought we could be, and then teaching our children this as the new way of being, accomplish it as the new way of being. I think all of us have a relationship with an institution. I mean, you all talked about the church that you go to, like, you know, whether it's the church or the home or the school or the prison down the street, like, this is an era to decide which institutions are serving us and which do not, which are so monstrous, they need to be dismantled. Like I think Guantanamo needs to be dismantled as with most prisons in the country, right? Which are so monstrous, they need to be dismantled. And which which need to be reformed or reimagined, the schools, for example, or the churches perhaps, into a more life-giving version of themselves. And that kind of transitioning an institution is long labor, is courageous labor, and requires a small pocket of people <laughs> to be doing that internal work as they're doing the external work around them. And that, I think, is if we're breathing and amidst our labor, it, it can be deeply joyful work because I've, I've come to, to, to believe that laboring for a more just and beautiful order is, is the most meaningful way to be alive. No part of me is asleep. I'm awake. I'm awake. I'm awake. I'm hurting. And <laughs> I'm finding the joy and the solidarity and connection and community with all those who are laboring with me. And, and one of the things that I've, I, I wrestle, and I think this also goes along with where Scott was coming from is when you're in that system, it's, and you're trying to be a disruptor, how do you manage? Uh, so, so you're, you're trying, you're awakening yourself. So there's, there's a learning happening within yourself. Then you're in a system and you're now you're trying to somehow disrupt or be a part of the disruption of that system. And you're trying to be effective. I, I mean, I hate to use that word, but you, you want it to change. And so um, and, and I can say this as, as a, a female in pastoral ministry that is predominantly dominated by males, you know, ha, ha, it's like 
you're trying to really navigate and being white and trying to advocate in white communities that are like, well, you know, and it's like, no, mm -mm, we got to start doing the work. We got to start doing the work. That's sometimes where I, um, I uh, become so loud and maybe my anger, it's not effective. Anyway, just managing that. I wasn't, I'm not sure if you've had any experience seeing that happen or what that looks like. Like, for example, I, I was thinking in your book, with the Obama administration, like you were so happy when Obama won, but then there was a part of you, it sat, you know, you were disappointed. Yes. You know, there wasn't enough risk taking. Yes. Yes. You know, and that's why last year in January, I've with others created the people's inauguration to say that it's not enough for a single leader or even a set of leaders to be in positions of power where they might change the world that, if we're going to watch them take an oath, then it's actually time for each of us to make our own pledges, to take our particular piece of the labor and commit to staying faithful to it and laboring in love. And I, I believe we'll be doing a people's inauguration again in 2025, no matter who's in office, like let this be a time for we, the people to co-create the country. I think that was the mistake after Obama is that so many people, too many rested after but I will say to to thinking about your struggle, your labor, my message to you is like, oh, my love, stay faithful to the labor. Stay me Measure your success, not by outcomes, but by your faithfulness to the labor. We might live to see the impact of our labors and we might not. Mm. But to trust that when we labor according to our deepest values, when we're laboring with love, that that trusting the power of that and the, rever the reverberations of that. I just... You know, last weekend I was invited back to Yale Law School to speak. Yeah. And I have to tell you, when I was a student there, right, you read like I, I wanted to disappear. I wanted to get small. My my law school professor was like, you're not here to change how the law thinks. Your job is to change. You know, you're not here to let the law change how you think. Your job is to change how the law thinks. And so my secret mission was to make the law more loving. And I created this small circle of women in my living room where we would come together. We were a pocket of resistance. And for me, we were just surviving, just surviving, just surviving. You know, fast forward 10 years, you know, last summer, in the last year, the women of Yale Law School waged an all-out revolt. I mean, there were sit-ins in the hallways and in the courtyards. It was after Brett Kavanaugh's um, confirmation hearings, but they were using that moment to catalyze, like, the law school itself waking up to all the ways women, people of color, our voices have been marginalized in, in these spaces of power. And <laughs> I, I could not have imagined it then. But the, the pockets, the seeds we had planted were finding fruition now. So now Yale Law School has a, a woman dean, the first woman dean ever. And those hallways where I only saw older white men who none of them who sounded like me, looked like me or believed, you know, saw the world the way I did. I only saw those portraits on the walls. Now um, this dean, Heather Gherkin, has created this living alumni project where she's put the portraits of a living alumni on the wall. So I was just at Yale Law School last weekend, walking through the hallways with my mentor, Reva, Reva Siegel, and we see our portrait. We see my portrait. <laughs> and it says the Revolutionary Love Project. And then I give a talk to alumni. And this time my mission is not so secret. I'm like, I'm here because I believe revolutionary love is the call of our times and that the love ethic can be the foundation of all you are and all you do. And you know what? They were hungry for it. They were ready for it. You know, those seeds that we planted early on are just, and I couldn't have imagined that would have happened in my lifetime. And surely we have much, much further labor to go, but 
the idea that staying faithful to the labor can can yield change that might feel incremental, but are actually just it's leaps and bounds when it comes to the overall life of an institution. And the other example, and I'll just give this because it's just so important, especially after the book, is that I was just invited to the White House last month and President Biden, that's when he recognized my work. But the real, the real, um, the real transcendent moment was when he addressed the nation and gave a talk on white supremacist violence as a national priority. And he said Balbir Singh Sodhi's name. You know, he said his name, like 20 years of raising our hands saying, please look at us. Finally, two decades later, for them to, for him to say, for the administration to say, your pain matters and your work matters, and we have a lot farther to go, but you're not alone anymore. You know, it's those moments that keep me faithful. Right, and this one also keeps me faithful. (laughs) (laughs) This is Elsie. We have one of your kids will should be popping in. (laughs) Oh, they all read Mama's book. And we're talking about the book. Yeah, you just want to cuddle. We'll just cuddle. I always assume I know what you're going to say. I feel like I know you from reading the book, but I want to ask you this question. You're so impressive. So many of us were just like, how did you do all of this and still be a mom and a wife and a daughter and all the things? And I just want to know, how do you care for yourself? Like, when do you, when do you recognize that you need us a break or like, what are the things that continue to fuel you in your work. Um, and I'm, and I'm guessing self-care is a part of that, but what are the things that kind of fuel you? Well, you can see like, you know, (laughs) it feels impossible every day and yet we get through every day somehow. And then can I tell them a story about what happened last summer when you sat on my head? Can I tell them that? Okay. And then I were playing in the, in our downstairs in our little play area when she, this is the thick of the pandemic and she climbed on top of my head and sat there for a minute. And then she climbed back down and said, biggest smile. She said, mommy, I went number one on your head. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I turned to my husband up. I think it's time for a break. Mommy needs a break now. It's time for mommy to have a break now. <laughs> he sent me to a hotel down the street for a couple of nights because I was losing my mind. And then, and then we went to the, we went to the forest together. A few weeks later, we decided to take a trip as a family and <sighs> to breathe. Yeah to breathe, to breathe, to breathe. Oh boy. I so, I so get that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. It's just, and and that's why I don't, I don't use the word self-care anymore. Like I, I just, it's community care. It's like, I'm so lucky. I have a husband, I have parents who are co-raising. We have an intergenerational home. They're co-raising the children with us. That's the only way I can mother them and mother the movement and still like, you know, be breathing every day. And there's, there's, of course, there's so many women who don't, who don't have those layers of support. And so how can we create more spaces like this where we can be well when the labor is so hard and so long? Well, and and you talk about, I love that. um, Actually, I think it was Claudia that brought this quote in that you say revolutionary love can only be practiced in community. And everything Mm -hmm. I'm hearing from you is community. Yes. Community, the intergenerational home to care, give for children, community. Yes, absolutely. Remember you talking about that your your work is a feminist intervention and the way that we think of, like, I think that's why it made so much sense to me about emotion and introspection and breathing. And I'm wondering though, what, what pushback do you get and how do you respond to that? I got a lot of pushback earlier on when I first came out with the Revolutionary Love Project and this message. It was 
right after the last president was elected. And I got messages from activists who I loved and respected saying, you know, I'm ready for war, not love. And I understood, you know, there's so much trauma. It's almost like seeing what was being done to our people and the onslaught, just how could you not just want to take up arms and and there is like a section of the compass that's about fighting. Like, so I want to honor that. And there's only so long that you can run on the fumes of hostility before you start to worry that you're becoming what we're fighting against. And so fast forward five years, I have some of those same folks are, are coming to my door now saying, okay, how, how do we last? How do we last? How do we last? And a, a lot of the, a lot of the early pushback was like, why should I give my opponents any time, any attention? you know, when they've taken so much from me. And and I'm like, well, my response is, you don't have to. <laughs> the framework is such that your only job is to give other people permission to do that labor, you know, to see their humanity at, as as you receive the support you need, that it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to take away from what, what you need either. So the idea, I think, and this, this is again, the new nonviolence, I think, I think I've been able through time, the framework has been tested and tested, the compass has been tested, and, and, and because it's flexible and dynamic and people hold it in community, in the last year, the big thing in the last year is that communities have started to self-organize around the compass. Um, in, in, in churches, I, I get folks saying, well, it says love thy neighbor in our scriptures, but how, how do we put that into practice in a world as dizzying as this? And so they're doing sermon series or book series around it. In schools, this was really surprising to me, elementary schools, like I... They're saying, well, we want to teach our children social emotional learning, but we don't know how to do it in a world in crisis. And and you're giving us a way to do it that gives them the lens of justice as well. So they're starting to take up revolutionary love as the ethic of a school culture and companies. They're saying we're hitting a wall with DEI. There's only so far we can shame people into obedience. You know, and so I say anti-racism is the bridge. Beloved community is the destination. And to get there, you have to be like practicing those, deepening those capacities for love along the way. So, so with all of that, you know, the Rev Love Project in the last five, it's just been an experiment. And now that it, this, this is becoming a movement with a heartbeat on the outside of me, I'm, we're now becoming our own 501c3. I'm looking ahead to the next 20 years and I'm designing for the next 20 years of impact for as long as it'll take for the country to become a multiracial society how how can we be giving enough people the tools where they are to start to practice this on the ground? So I, I've been saying I spent the last 20 years organizing around hate. My commitment, my pledge at the People's Inauguration was to spend the next 20 years organizing around love. I wanted to talk about the Revolutionary Love Project and have you just tell us, you know, how how are you encouraging people? You know, you're, you just talked about what it was and how can we access it and what what is it and how do white people start working towards this? Because that's that's our our uh, focus here. I'm going to put I'm going to put this. You might have to copy and paste it. Cenostranger.com. So we're at the beginning. You're, we're finding us at just the beginning of this beautiful designing work that we'll be doing. We're, we're hosting a national listening tour this fall. And so even if you would like to be interested in talking to my team about what your needs are, we'll be designing for you. We'll be designing for different contexts. If you go to Ceno Stranger and you set up their email address, so we'll keep in touch over, over the long haul. But what you'll see at that website is that we've already created a learning hub where different parts of the compass light up. And there are guided inquiries and practices and tools, courses. So you could take any piece of it 
and, and bring it into your life. And what I want to tell you is that if any of this is resonating with you, it's just touching wisdom that's already inside you. You know, love is our birthright. You know, it's it's come down to us through our spiritual teachers, through our, our foremothers and forefathers for thousands of years. It's just, I'm just trying to surface what you already know to be true. So whether you use these tools or there are other tools that help you, I think I, what I what I most want people to know, especially white people to know is that you, you are so powerful. <laughs> Like you have agency. You might think, well, I don't have a platform or I'm not even on social media or I'm I'm older and the younger. Actually, like you have a sphere of influence that, that I don't have, that nobody else has. There's a particular role that only you can play with your set of relationships. And as long as we think of governments and corporations as the powerful in our society, as where true power resides and where change can happen, <laughs> we will be emptying ourselves of our agency. We will tell ourselves a story of our, of our helplessness and therefore it, it feels hopeless. But if we shift that and say, actually each of us in the thousands of interactions we have every day and every choice we make, every encounter, every decision, every conversation, we are co-creating culture and we are co-creating what happens next and next and next and next. And the power of just this magical meeting across the screen and all different parts, parts like the power of this to carry this, to let it change you on a cellular level and influence then what you do next and next and next and next. I, it's, it's the, it's the slow, invisible, deliberate change. It's the less glamorous change, right? I'm not interested so much. I, I want you to march, but then I'm interested in what table you come home to and how you're treating the people who are, you know, sitting at that table. It's like how, if we're shifting how we think of, of social change to be in the space between us, then, oh, my love, own your power. And with this time that we have on this earth, like these beautiful years that we have together, let us show up with, with all of our love. And then our labors each day, it's not just a means to an end. It can be an end in, in itself. You know, and, and that's what, going back to Papaji, that's what he taught, the Sapahi path, the sage, the warrior. The sage is enamored by the world as it is. The warrior labors for the world as it ought to be. That, that breathe and that push, that beautiful juxtaposition is actually how to live a good life, like how to live a liberated life, not just good, like liberated life. Six, we don't think we don't think so much about salvation after death. Liberation is now and here. And so you, you know, you're welcome to hold both. And I invite you to imagine what it might mean to say, oh, this pattern of consciousness that we have, this body, this voice, this spirit, this time that we have right now, while I have it, how do I show up in my fullest, my fullest heart and know that's enough? And Christianity is the same thing. Salvation is not later it is now it is now and it is it is and that's one of the yes amen and 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 progressive christians need to be getting that word out there because salvation is now right now how are we going to act right now in today's world to bring glimpses of the true eternal love right right here because that's what we're trying to do is work together as a community and create that co-create that with one another and so that it, it, there is so much similarity there's so much more that we have in common than we ever have differences and it's just working in community and focusing on love. We do, I will say, we loved our group, loved the idea. We, we now move to opponents. We're, we're getting rid of enemies and we're moving to opponents because what we realize is when we get to any opponents, there's opportunity for change. There's opportunity for understanding, for wondering where if it's an enemy, you feel like you got to battle and fight and get your sword out, right? <laughs> so it, we love it. We're, we're all on opponent. 
We were oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've talked a lot about all kinds of different fun things. What else is uh, out there for people? Valerie, I'm curious how, how you will celebrate when the beloved community is here. Oh, <laughs> it is here, my love. It is here. It is here. Look, look around. Look at this space. Look at this. Look at this baby. She gets to feel this beautiful energy, this space, yeah. this connection. This, oh, it's here. It's already here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, how do we live into it more and more and more and more? So I say, like, how do we celebrate now? We celebrate with dancing, right, Gugu? Anandi and I love to dance every night. <laughs> no matter how dark the day is, how difficult, how, what's happened in the world and the news, we dance. Yeah. We dance every night because it's, yeah. it's, it's here. It's, we become the beloved community by, by birthing it here right, right now in, in, in the pockets where we might be able to steward influence, like in this home, this, this home tries to be a pocket of beloved community. Yeah. We have to make that choice. We have to decide to do it. Yeah. And once you do. And, and you know, beloved community is not the absence of conflict. You know, it's not the disappearance of our problems. <laughs> it's, it's not even, you know, the absence of, of trauma or terror or pain. It's a space where everyone is welcome to feel at home in their body and therefore at home in the world. And you create that space when, when, you, when you approach those problems and those conflicts and those needs with dignity, with seeing those, with seeing the humanity and choosing to wonder, to love on others. I mean, through the pandemic, every Friday, every Sunday night, we had a family meeting. My, my mother re- renamed it happy hour. So it would feel more joyful. <laughs> We talked about all the needs and we went around the table. Like, what are your needs? What are your needs? It's from disability justice. Like, what is it? What is, what does everyone need? How are your needs being fulfilled for this coming week? And we'll all co-conspire to fulfill those needs. It's like, that's the beloved community, right? Where we're like in the labor together, but leading with love on all sides. There's enough to celebrate it now, even as we build it out and out and out. I just wanted to mention how wonderful it is to listen to you. Reading your book was wonderful, but to listen to you, your your attitude is just so uplifting. Thank you so much for all you've done for us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I feel it. <laughs> I was interested in your interpretation of the symbolism in your in your prayer. The hot winds cannot touch you. What are the hot winds? No one's ever asked me that before. It's such a good question. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm thinking of all the moments where I have sang that. So, dati vanalagi badram shanai jogadhamare ramkar dukhlagena pai. My mother is singing that to me while I'm birthing Ananda into the world. I'm singing that to my grandfather as he's taking his last breaths on this earth. Singing it for Joyce as I'm putting her body into the cremation and the fires take her. We're singing it when the forest fires almost took the sequoias that we love so much. Gavi wanted to sing it when the war in Ukraine began, imagining a shield. And I just sang it in Merced, where a sick family was brutally taken. So what is what are the hot winds? You know, it's it you might still be afflicted. You might still you might still have pain visit you and horrors visit you. You might lose your life. And yet the hot winds cannot touch you. You are shielded by love. I think there's this, that, that still small part of us that cannot be touched. You know, maybe it's where spirit resides or soul resides or, or a wise woman resides. Like 
to say that there is something deep, 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 deep inside of us that can be the center that holds us together through whatever forms we take on this on this earth. I'm gonna have to think more about it. I'm gonna I feel it, but it's hard to find language for it, right? Oh, I that was pretty powerful. That was pretty okay. good. <laughs> I, I feel, that was that was very that was what a great question, Donna. Well, with that, I mean, Valerie, I just, I want to just thank you. And um, we are grateful that you um, are here with us today um, with our, with our, with our group, uh, our people, and and just, um, I know that we're humble and we're excited and we're trying to figure this all out, but, but your words have moved us. Thank you. Oh my goodness. And your presence has nourished me. These questions, this community, it's so beautiful. Thank you. It's nourished both of us, right? Thank you so much for listening. Together, we are what God looks like. The Collective Table is supported by San Diego United Methodist Church in Encinitas, California, and the California Pacific Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. A big thank you to our producer and content editor, Claire Watson. If you'd like to financially support the work of The Collective Table, please visit us at thecollectivetable.org. There you can also find out more about who we are and view past episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, YouTube channel, and newsletter, and keep up with us on our Instagram and Facebook at The Collective Table.